Y'all hear me okay? Just coming through. All right. Uh, if you're visiting, a special welcome. And my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. And that was Tim Udodge, another one of our pastors who was leading in worship. And as he said, we're going through the minor prophets this summer. If you haven't heard that term, that's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And um, tend to be neglected, tend to not really be known even by people who've been around the Bible, been around church. Um, so we're going to try to get into it a little bit, look around and see what we find. This is God's Word. And uh, as we've mentioned already in this series, one of the things that Jesus was adamant about and, uh, and the apostles were adamant about is that He, in His person and in His ministry, was the fulfillment of the prophets. And there's sort of some big famous ones like Isaiah. We read Isaiah at Christmas and things like that. But, but He's the fulfillment of all the prophets. So we need to get in, these, in all these books... Uh, hopefully so that we see how Christ is shown there, Christ is revealed. So we are going to be this morning in Nahum, and I'm not kidding. Uh, Like I said on Obadiah, you you may need to take notes this morning if you don't normally take notes, because this may be the only Nahum sermon you ever encounter in your life. Hope not, but it might be. And what we've tried to do uh, is a three-chapter book. We've tried to take a representative passage from each book and uh, or, or parts of the book, So I'm going to do a little bit from chapter 1 and then from uh, chapter 3. I don't know how many of you saw the Avengers, the first Avengers movie. There's a great scene in uh, in the first Avengers movie, and it's toward the end of the movie when it's just about to go down, where Tony Stark, now that's Iron Man when he doesn't have his Iron Man suit on, Tony Stark is talking to Loki, and Loki is the brother of Thor, and he's a bad guy, and he's going to just completely invade and take over and, and rule earth, evil ruler. And so they meet up in this like kind of penthouse condo of Tony Stark's in New York. And it's, this is like the two most egotistical beings in the universe squaring off with each other. And so as they're walking up toward each other, uh, Loki says, please tell me that you're going to appeal to my humanity. And Tony Stark says, "Uh, no, actually I was planning to threaten you. And uh, Loki says, well, you should have kept your suit of armor on for that. And uh, Tony Stark says, well, that's, that's probably true. You've got the glow stick of destiny with you. He has the stick that he kills people with. And, but then uh, Tony Stark says, so can, can I get you a drink? He walks over to the bar and says, can, can I get you a drink? And Loki says, stalling won't help you. And Tony Stark says, no, 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 still threatening. Can I get you a drink? I'm going to have one. And they go back and forth. And, and there's this famous line about, um, maybe it's not famous, but... I love it, is uh, when, um, you know, Loki says, I have an army, and Tony Stark says, yeah, we have a Hulk. Back and forth, back and forth, and then really everything escalates. Um, We call that trash talking in our cultural setting. That's actually an old way of talking, which probably wouldn't surprise you since humans are humans and we've squared off with enemies and taunted each other. It's called a taunt. Um... You'll find this in ancient literature. You'll find it in ancient documents where uh, someone's describing a conquest or that they're going to face an enemy or they'll send a message to an enemy and they'll taunt them. Now, I I couldn't put the whole of Nahum in here. I really would love for you to read it. You could read it in just a few minutes this afternoon. But Nahum is essentially a taunt that's true. You know, sometimes when we taunt, we, like you've heard people say, you're, 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 uh, your mouth is writing checks that your body can't back up. Like you may be taunting, but you're posturing, you can't really back up and do what you, 
you're saying, but this is God saying to uh, an incredibly powerful, incredibly important, and incredibly violent city and culture, you're going down. Uh, just as a little quick word of background, this is, this is written to the same city that we looked at two weeks ago when we considered the minor prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah is a more famous minor prophet, but it's the same city, the city of Nineveh. That's the Assyrian capital for at least 50 years. It may not have been these 50 years. It was the largest city in the world, incredibly rich and incredibly feared. Nahum comes at least 100 years after Jonah. It may be about 150 years after Jonah. In Jonah, God sends Jonah the prophet to Nineveh, tells it to repent. They do repent. God changes their hearts. And God doesn't send this disaster He was going to send. This is about 100, 150 years later, same city. We'll start at the beginning of the book, and then we'll include the the last verse in the whole book, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Then chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city! all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And in the final verse of the book, there is no easing your hurt, Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are heavy words. And all your words are, but sometimes they are heavy with comfort. Sometimes they are heavy with reassurance. And in these words, we've just heard vengeance and anger and wrath and blood. 
and it may be jarring or it may be uh, that it leaves some of us thinking this is what I don't like about the Old Testament or this is what I don't like about religion. And so, Lord God, however we come, especially as your word describes what you're like, we pray that we'll hear you and you'll open up our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Earlier uh, this week or, or this past week, on Tuesday night, PBS uh, has, a, has a journalistic segment they do, a, a piece called Frontline. And Frontline did uh, a segment called Escaping ISIS. You may or may not have seen this, but it's about women in areas controlled by ISIS who have escaped or men and women in their lives, relatives, friends, who are trying to, to get women out from, um, who've been kidnapped, abducted, or in controlled areas. Uh, remarkable story, a lot of kind of one-of-a-kind footage, hidden, hidden cameras that have gone into ISIS territory, but about halfway through the episode, the, uh, the journalist who, who's telling the story interviews a woman, and she, she is, is a uh, Yaziki. And, and you remember when ISIS went into one area, there was a lot of persecution of Christians, but there was a sort of obscure religion in that area that was also persecuted. She was a member of that religion, so she had been abducted and had been um, held and had been assaulted and misused and had seen many, many women treated the same way and escaped and escaped with two girls. I believe they were her relatives. And so she just recounted what happened and, 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 and what her life was like. So as you're listening to her, you just, you're struck by... You, you can tell that she's emotionally distraught by it, but she's a very strong woman. That she's just able to talk about these awful, horrific things in a calm way. And so as she does so, she talks about one day when she saw a nine-year-old girl grabbed and, and she was being dragged off or something horrible to happen, and she attacked the attacker. And the attacker told her that he was going to kill her if she didn't stop. And she said, I would rather die than this happen. But she couldn't save the girl, and the girl was taken off, and she was assaulted. And, and she was able to say this on camera calmly. And just right after that, all of a sudden, this young woman began to spasm. And they had to uh, let her lie down on the floor and, and put her knees back. And her children came and rubbed her hands. And what happened on camera was she had a panic attack. And the journalist asked her family as they're trying to comfort her and, and, and rouse her, how often does this happen? And one of her relatives said, five times a day. Um, there, there's, there's two impulses in people who would say that they believe there's a God. I'm not saying everybody has, has would say it exactly this way, but, but it's, it's something along these lines. God... How can you let things like that happen? Do something about it. Right? In fact, that's, a, that's the opening of the prophet that we're going to look at next week. Jake's going to be preaching on Habakkuk. That's how it opens. Why aren't you doing something about the awful things that we're living through? Okay, so there's that. And there's God, give people a break. God, give people a chance. God give people a second chance. And interesting, those get at rich biblical themes. And both of those themes show up in Nahum. 
So here's what I want to look at. As I said, this is sort of Jonah part two. It's about the city of Nineveh, but Nineveh represents the Assyrian Empire. Uh, I want to look at the warrior city, and Nineveh was. War city, violent city, strength city, imperialistic city, conquest city. The warrior city, and then the divine warrior, as Tim mentioned earlier. So Nineveh, and then, and then God. All right, first question, and I think you already you know the answer to this. Uh, just from the passage I read, and, and definitely if you read these three chapters, maybe later today, you'll know Nineveh is in trouble. Why is Nineveh in so much trouble? Now, it doesn't give you tons of detail in the book itself, but here's, here's a couple of little clues. Look at the second section in the passage. That, now, the first part was from chapter 1, but look at this section below from chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city. And then the last verse of the, uh, of the entire book. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Now, what kind of evil is it talking about? And even just from those verses, uh, well, there was, they looted nations. And they'd conquer these areas and they brought all the gold and all the women they wanted and all the child laborers that they wanted and all the cultural riches. They were a deceitful nation. There's actually evidence of that in the Old Testament. When Assyria came up against the people of God and said, hey, look, if you'll just be reasonable and listen to us and come with us, well, every, you know, every man will sit under his tree, every man will sit under his vine, everybody will be fine. That's a total lie. They were liars. But the big one is violence. I want to give you just some snapshots of what they were like. Here's what one writer said. Uh, As the Assyrian army arrived back to Nineveh from a successful campaign, its captives were well aware of the horrors that awaited them, for they were in for unthinkable suffering and cruelty. As the soldiers came over the horizon, there would be a numerous line of captives being led by cords that had hooks which were pierced through the nose or lips. Many could look forward to being blinded by the king of Nineveh himself who would use the point of a spear. Other prisoners awaited impalement, being hanged by their nude bodies upon pointed stakes that were run up through the stomachs into the chest cavities of the victims. Others still were whipped or beaten severely and then had their skin removed from their body while still alive. Here's what one uh, Assyrian ruler said about a campaign that he conducted. And there's, there's, this is an existing document. I built a pillar over against... Uh, his city gate, my enemy's gate. And I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, skinned them alive. I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire. Many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers. From others I cut off their noses, their ears. Many I put out the eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to tree trunks round about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. And here's, here's how one Old Testament scholar just sort of summarized what these guys are like. Quote, in terms of atrocities perpetrated, the Assyrian Empire has to be ranked with the concentration camps of Nazi Germany the Cambodia of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, and the Uganda of Idi Amin. Assyria is but one instance of what happens 
when lust for power is combined with callous indifference to human suffering. So think cultural riches of the most important city in the world linked with the ethos of ISIS. And and that's Nineveh. Now, why is that so important to see? Um, There's lots of directions we could go with this, but here's, here's one observation. This is not true of everyone here about your life and your upbringing. Some of you grew up with some really horrible things. Um, some of you have told me some. There's, I'm sure, a lot that I don't know and I, I may never hear. But I, I would say because of where we are and because of when we are in history, there's quite a few people here who have had, globally speaking, an amazingly safe and comfortable and predictable life. And people like us are often shocked to find out that not only in the world right now do things like this exist, but this world has always been a world with genocide and torture and starvation as a tactic and decapitations in the brutalizing of children. It's always been that kind of world. Uh, For people who've grown up in this part of the world, when they see Westerners respond with, I can't believe anyone would do this, they want us to be upset, but often they're looking at people like Americans saying, "Uh, you're sort of late to this party. We've always known that the world is like this. This is a shock to you. We know that this is the real world. That present tense is the real world. You know, when you and I have a good meal, or we laugh with friends, or we laugh at a funny movie, that can be a really great thing. That can be a really great part of God's good creation. But the way it's always been is that the only world where you can laugh, the only world where you can do something that's fun or enjoyable, is in a world with concentration camps and gulags and genocide and torture and brutality to children. It's always been like that, and it upsets God. Now, we tend to think, well, he's not doing anything immediately, so he must not be upset. And we'll look at that in a second, but there's a word here that I really want us to hear. I may have tipped the hat with the Avengers opening. The word comes at the beginning of the book, and it's vengeance. And you can kind of fly past that and think that's just sort of a generic term for he'll get his, but it's actually a technical term. Think about this. If, uh, if someone murdered a police officer and then the police swoop in, if they find the person who did that and they bring them into custody and they incarcerate them and then they're put into the legal system and through due process that person is found guilty of what they did, then that person got what? Justice. But if police officers had swooped in because this is a friend of theirs and went and found that person and killed that person, which would be wrong, that would be illegal. But that would be vengeance. It would be repayment in kind. And the reason I want you to hear this is that the God we're encountering here is not a a God who's flying off the handle. And we're about to see that in a second. 
What he's saying to Nineveh is this. I am going to give you... He doesn't use the word justice. I'm going to give you vengeance. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do to you what you have, what you have done throughout your history. And I, this is, in some ways, this is clarifying for us to hear this. Because even if we don't live in it right now, we watch the news. And that can be news about Syria. That can be news about Greenville. I mean, just in the past week or two, there have been these awful stories from the upstate about uh, neglect and abuse and brutality to children. This is our world. And we've got to hear, this upsets God. Nineveh is like a billboard. And he says, you get vengeance. Now, that's the warrior city. What about the divine warrior? That's an, old, that's an old term for God, by the way. It's not the dominant metaphor. But uh, when God rescued the people from Egypt and He brought them through the, the Red Sea and He destroyed the Egyptian army, global superpower of that day, the, peop- the Israelites burst in the song and one of the first lyrics is that God is a warrior. That was protection and reassurance for them. That, it was His goodness. What, what do you see about God as warrior? In, uh, in, this, in this passage. And I, I want you to note something. When you see in an English translation, LORD, in all caps, all cap, L-O-R-D, that's our English rendering of God's personal name. Yahweh would be one pronunciation of it. And Yahweh is not His title. It's not like God or King or Creator. Yahweh is His name. Like your name is John, or your name is Jennifer, or my name is Brian. It's his personal name that he told us. And it means, it's it's incredibly difficult to translate, it means something like, I am who I am. Not what you think I am, not how you misconstrue me, not how you misunderstand me. My name is I am who I am. No one else can have that name. Because only I am who I am. Now listen, look at how you keep seeing him use his personal, uh, uh, the personal name is used. Go back to the beginning of the passage, verse 2. And this is jarring to us because there's going to be a back and forth you're about to hear. Now just let me juxtapose some, some verses here. Verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And then what's the next verse? The Lord is slow to anger. Would you naturally put those two together? And it, it says it over and over in the Scriptures. In Hebrew, it, some of you have heard this, it literally means long of nose. The Hebrew metaphor for what it takes for me finally to manifest my anger. We use the metaphor of a fuse. The Hebrews use the metaphor of a nose. And this thing that God says about Himself, and they say about Him over and over and over, is that He has a long nose. Vengeance, wrath, vengeance, wrath, slow to anger. Look down in verse 6. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. And then what's the next verse? The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in Him. Why is it important for us to see that these things that seem to be at odds with each other keep being put right beside each other? Why is that so important? Um, if I may quote from our, uh, our confession of faith, our, our denomination and our church, Downtown Prez, have doctrinal boundaries. And we have a doctrinal confession. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not perfect, but it's pretty great. And there's a phrase that's used when, in one of the earliest chapters, and it's used to describe God. And here's the phrase. It says that God is, quote, without body, parts, or passions. Without body, parts, or passions. And the first part's pretty straightforward. God doesn't have a body. God's a spirit. He doesn't have parts. In other words, there's not one-third of God over in this part of the universe and one-third of God over in this part of the universe. Wherever there's existence, the fullness of God is there. And anything He does, the fullness of His character is there. There's no part that's not there. What does passions mean? That God doesn't have passions. Does that mean God doesn't have feelings? No. I, I definitely hear feelings in this passage. Sometimes it's great feelings of love and care. Sometimes it's wrath. What are passions? What, what's a crime of passion? What's a, it actually, it uses the term well. What is a crime of passion? A crime of passion is where feelings overrode character or clear thinking. Someone did something they, they wouldn't have done. They found their spouse with someone else and they kill the mistress. And... They come back to being their normal self. Crime of passion. God never does that. God has the purest, deepest feelings of any being. But His feelings never come unhinged from His goodness and His character. We could even say His wrath and His anger flows out of His good character. It's not capricious. It's not out of control ever. Well, how does that help us? And uh, I want you to think about a couple of things. Number one, Nineveh drives home, first off, that God's promises are not abstractions. Because it may have been decades after Nahum wrote this down, that anything actually happened. Assyria went its merry way, conquering, plundering, pillaging, burning people alive, brutality. And you've got these strong words. Here's this big taunt about what God's going to do, and maybe for decades it doesn't happen. And then, in 612 B.C., Nineveh was overrun by the Babylonians and the Medes until it didn't exist. Uh, Think about this. Any city that's had sort of a global superpower role in world history is still around in some capacity. It may be greatly diminished, but it, like, it still exists. Cairo or Rome or Athens or even London. They may be reduced from a former glory, but they still exist. They're still around. Nineveh does not exist anymore. It's across the Tigris River from Mosul. It's not there anymore. That would have been unimaginable in the time of Nahum or the time of Jonah. Why is that so important to see? Well, think about this. When 
Maybe this has been said to you when you've experienced an injustice. And I'm thinking here particularly if you're a, if you're a professing believer. And I, as I always say, I don't assume that you are. But let's say that you're a Christian and you've experienced injustice. Or your insides are just torn up about something you're seeing in our culture or in the news, domestic news, international news. And, and it is that feeling of, when is God going to do something about that? And maybe someone says to you, Hey, one day God takes care of all this. Or maybe you read in the Bible that it's saying, hey, one day God takes care of all this. Can we just be honest and say that to us it seems like an abstraction? Like, really? That He's going to do that? Because there's the news again. And like, this is the same kind of news that I've been watching my whole life. And I'm in my, what, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? So He's going to do something? When? And he doesn't tell us. But the promise that he will... Nineveh is a billboard that when God says, I will pour out vengeance. I will right all wrongs. I have seen everything that's transpired. I will be just. I will be who I am. That is not an empty promise. The emptiness across the Tigris River from Mosul is preaching to us. second thing is this, and I, again, this may be old hat to you, but maybe it's not. You know, why are we talking so much about wrath? You know, I, I could picture somebody sitting here this morning thinking, man, I don't like church this morning. I was kind of like looking to be <laughs> encouraged a little bit. I've had a hard week, and you're just, just I'm hearing like vengeance and wrath and God's anger. How is that helpful to us? We just have to say this on a regular basis. Wrath is part of our story. Wrath is part of our story. What do I mean by that? God's anger about sin is not just anger at the bad people's sin out there. He is angry about sin, period. He is angry about violence. He is angry about injustice. But he is angry about selfishness. A selfishness that would like turn our hearts in on ourselves so that neighbors that we could love, neighbors that we could help, injustices that we could address in our small way, we won't do them because we are absorbed with ourselves. He is angry. It angers him when we lie. When we lie, we tell two lies. We tell the lie about the thing we're lying about, and we lie if we claim to be His people that He's like that because our lives are supposed to reflect what His life is like. When we lie, we lie twice. I'm lying and I'm saying God is a liar. He's upset about that. Where does that go for us? Where does that go for us? Um... Think about this. One of the most, I think, uh, confusing and even, I think, infuriating things that a non-Christian can hear Christians say is that God put His Son to death to show us how much He loves us. We've gotten used to trafficking in, in that kind of language and those kind of categories. 
if you have a non-Christian friend or relative or co-worker and you were to say that, God showed me how much he loved me by putting his own son to death. I mean, anyone who's sort of mildly thinking would probably be saying, what kind of monster puts their son to death to like show you how much they love you? I mean, if, if you had a friend who killed their son or daughter as a way of showing you that they love you, we would absolutely say they're a maniac, that they're, that they're insane and violent. Why are we saying that God is great for doing that? And, and you know what they're pushing us on is, do you know why Jesus actually had to die? And I would ask that question. Do we know why Jesus actually had to die? And I would just tell you from my own life, I grew up in the church. I had great teaching. I had great, te- I, I had great teachers. People invested in me. I was brought up with the Bible. I owe all those people a debt I can't repay. But I remember a moment when finally, in about 10th grade, I asked, uh, I asked someone in our church, why did he have to die? If God is all-powerful, why couldn't he just say, I mean, he's all-powerful, he made the universe. Why couldn't he just say, poof, sin is forgiven? In fact, when his son prays, is there any other way we can do this? His all-powerful father has to say, no, he doesn't say it. It's just clearly the answer. What does Jesus save us from? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul refers to and he praises Jesus, quote, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. It just is, I'm telling you from experience, it is so easy as a believer in Jesus and as a follower of Jesus to begin to feel like I could never have really been in trouble. It's me. I'm incredibly lovable. And I think there's probably wonderful, endearing things about every person in the room. But what the Scriptures are very clear about is that we we don't avert the wrath of God because we're good. We don't avert the wrath of God because we didn't deserve the wrath of God. We avert the wrath of God because Jesus absorbs it on behalf of His people. His people who went before Him He takes wrath for them. His people yet to be like us. He takes wrath for them. We need to know that God is one day going to fix everything. Everything in the news, everything known and unknown, He's going to address it and make all wrongs right. But we also need to understand, God doesn't stop being a God of wrath because we believe but the wrath went somewhere else and we don't have to fear it anymore. Let me end with this. Uh, I, I reread a book recently. It sounds kind of braggy. I, I reread this book, you know. I, I read the first time, then I reread it recently. But this is a, it's a book about being a pastor, and I really enjoyed this. It's called The Art of Pastoring by David Hansen. And, okay, long story short, he, his seminary training I would describe as uh, not as conservative as my own. 
and, uh, and his denomination not as conservative as ours. I think that's pretty safe to say, and he's, he's open about that. So he says he starts out pastoring, and he just, he just was so torn up about this whole hell thing and wrath of God thing. And so he just, he just did not know what to do about it. And then he found out, I think maybe in seminary, that there had been these brilliant people in the past, brilliant biblical scholars, who were what you call universalists. And universalists would say that everybody ends up going to heaven. If there's a hell, there's no one in it because Jesus, because Jesus took care of it. And he, he just he felt like he had found like good kryptonite or something like, ah, yes, okay, I'm going to preach Jesus. This is great. And he then began to see how it affected him personally and how it affected his preaching. And the more he read the Bible and the more he prepared sermons, he just went, I, this, it's not holding water. This doesn't hold water. So then he found another position called annihilationism. I usually don't use this much jargon, but there it is. And annihilationism is it, it's, it's the belief that God, in the end, what he does with his enemies, he just annihilates them. There's, there's no future punishment. There's no future reckoning. He just, they don't exist anymore. And he just thought, whew, got it. Okay, he can be angry, but there's no ongoing punishment. There, there's, and the more he was in the Bible, the more he read the Gospels, it didn't hold water. And he went on to say this, when hell kicked back into my theology, something unexpected happened. It was to be expected that my evangelistic preaching would get hotter. What I hadn't anticipated was that my preaching and teaching on matters of caring for the poor and speaking out for the oppressed got hotter too. After all, Jesus himself taught us to care for the poor and oppressed, and like the Old Testament prophets, he taught it with teeth. And he said this, I scorched some eyebrows when I preached that racial prejudice and anti-Semitism could send a person to hell. The congregation knew I meant it. And they took it because I was preaching the Word of God from a biblical prophetic position of declaring God's judgment against sin. The cross broadcasts that God is just, that God hates our sin. And the cross broadcast, as the text says, that the Lord is good. He will care for those who take refuge in Him. There is no refuge from Him, but there is refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we pray, we think about you facing the cup of wrath and saying, Father, please take this cup from me, and then being willing to take it and drink it for people like us. We should have drunk it, but we thank you so much that we don't have to, that because you did, we have a cup of blessing. We thank you, Father, that you see everything, that you will right all wrongs, that you are upset about oppression and violence and brutality. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly, and we ask this in your name. Amen.
When Jesus first served this meal to his disciples, um, many of you will know it was during it was during the course of Passover. It was in the setting of Passover, and uh, 